Welcome to Today on Broadway for Thursday, February 1st, 2018. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini. Did you know that Josh Molina cannot say the word February? February? Does he have to put the like the he R after to, the P? He has to enunciate it? Yeah, he kind of freaks out on the West Wing Weekly and, and, and talks about that month after January or before March, or he won't say it, you know. <laughs> It's like it's like Wednesday, Wednesday, ambulance. You know, I'm Broadway stars James Marino, and I'm the theater throwbacks Daniela Parcel. So, guys, um, today is or well, yesterday, the day we're recording, uh, Wednesday the 31st, is a very big day, and I'm a little upset. This is the problem with recording the day before the episode mm-hmm. comes out. But yesterday we missed a big one. It was the one and only. Tony Award winning Carol Channing's 97th birthday. Ni- 97. Can you believe this? She, She's 97 years she old. She could have babysat for Hal Prince. <laughs> exactly. She could have, yeah. Because <laughs> yesterday was Hal's birthday. Um, yeah, he was but 90. She's not, and he was 90. She's 97 years old. Obviously, three Tony Awards, including a Lifetime Achievement one. She's got a Golden Globe and an Oscar nomination. Most well known for originating the role of, role of Dolly Gallagher Levi in Hello, Dolly, and doing like 97 revivals and tours of it. Uh, but, you know, she also originated the role of, of Lorelai Lee in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Um, and she did a, a bunch of movies and, and things like that. She was in Thoroughly Modern Millie, the, the original film with Julie Andrews and Marilee Tyler Moore. Just what a great career and what a great personality. And if you remember, I think uh, it must have been a year and a half, two years ago now, when there were rumors about her instead of Donna Murphy, uh, but of Carol Channing being Bette Midler's alternate. She actually had to put out a video or a statement or something saying that wasn't true. But I believe it. If you would tell me that a 95, 96, 97-year-old Carol Channing was going to do two performances on Broadway Weekly, I I would believe you because she is just that uh, indomitable and that incredible. So happy birthday to uh, uh, Carol Channing. Danielle, I know you've done a theater throwback that related to Miss Channing. And, and I uh, tweeted Jane. it yesterday, so you guys can go check it ah, out. Very good. Yes, find the tweet. <laughs> listen to that episode again. James, do you have any good Carol Channing stories, either from your performing or journalistic podcasting career? Um. Well, when I was at the Jupiter Theater in Florida, uh, uh, Carol came in for a week to do her, her one-woman show. Uh, and we were there and we, you know, working at the Jupiter Theater, you did everything, you know, from backstage to lights to sound to, you know, they just used you as labor as well as on stage. Uh, uh-huh. And Carol came in and taught us in one week so much about the business uh, and just left everybody that much more happy and uplifted to have been in her presence for a week just a wonderful wonderful woman that's great well happy birthday i hope she celebrated in a, an extravagant and over-the-top lovely way uh, but also one more thing before we get into the news today marks the first performance of the roundabout theater company's world premiere of Lindsay farentino's new play amy and the orphans which will be directed by scott ellis the cast includes um, some some great names, in, including the one and only Deborah Monk, uh, as as well as Jamie Brewer. Um, Amy and the Orphans is um, about a family who 
after losing a parent, they come back together and and start to care for a sibling that has Down syndrome who ends up teaching them far more than they could have ever imagined. The show officially opens on March 1st and is currently scheduled to run through April 22nd at the Harold and Miriam Steenberg Center for Theater. So I'm sure we'll be talking about that one even more as the production progresses and especially when it officially opens and reviews are out. All right. First up in the news, Lincoln Center announces the full My Fair Lady company. Yeah, yesterday, the day before the company began rehearsals today, uh, Lincoln Center announced the complete cast of their upcoming revival of My Fair Lady. In addition to the previously announced principals, Lauren Ambrose and Harry Hayden Patton, whom I was quite rude to yesterday, but sorry, um, as well as Norbert Leo Butts, Diana Rigg, Jordan Donica, and more, um, a truly stunning ensemble was announced. The company now includes one of my theater crushes, Cameron Adams, Kirsten Anderson, who originated the role of Maria in Jack O'Brien's recent tour of The Sound of Music, the, the great John Tracy Egan, Hamilton's Sasha Hutchings, the one and only Liz McCartney, Blair Ross, Paul Slade Smith, and many, many more. James Daniela, this is a, a pretty impressive group of folks to be packed into an ensemble. And it kind of makes me excited to see who will be understudying what roles and all of that stuff to see who will be covering. Because when you have this much talent in the ensemble, it just kind of um, increases the number of combinations that could be really, really interesting for different combinations of cast members. Um, also, for all the guff that director Bartlett Shear gets for rarely ever casting people of color in racially neutral roles, obviously the king and I notwithstanding, this ensemble does have a handful of people of color, which is a good thing. And Jordan Danica, uh, Jordan Danica is playing Freddie and he's um, African-American. So that's, that's nice that we're seeing that kind of progress, but um, guys, uh, my fair lady begins performances on March 15th at the Vivian Beaumont theater with an opening night scheduled for April 19th. And I will be at the very first Wednesday matinee, get ready for the next 50 ish days to hear about all the shows that I'm saying, because I am giddily excited. And uh, especially for this one. We've got front row seats, actually. Front row seats at the at the Vivian Beaumont for this one on a matinee day. I'm telling you, John Tracy Egan totally is Liza's understudy. <laughs> Liza's understudy? Okay. Oh, he, I, I would tell you, he will totally nail it. Broadway backwards. Oh, he could. He's amazing. He's, he's like he one is, of those guys who's been totally around forever. Me. I mean, everybody yeah. in that list. Everybody. Yes, you know, and there's even more. Like Liz Harry McCartney. Patton. I'm, I'm, I have nothing against him. I have literally nothing against him. But it's just like when you see an ensemble right. that has like all these names of people that like for all intents and purposes could be leading the production. And then you have a guy that I literally watched a TV show that he's on and could not place him even when I saw him. <laughs> it's nothing against him. He's fine. Yeah. But it's just like you have this ensemble that screams like exciting Broadway names. And you've got this guy that. I've literally watched 12 episodes of him on a TV show and I still don't know who he is. That's, it's just disappointing a little bit. I'm sure I trust Bart though. Like I said, I, tr I trust Bart. Uh, I'm sure that he and, and Lauren will be fantastic, but it's just like, I could, I could have done with like, uh, you know, Colin Firth and Laura Benanti as well. I thought, I think that would have been fantastic too. Well, maybe Harry can uh, sing cellophane. It's, that's, not, that's not bad. Different show. But uh, it is kind of how I'm sure he feels right now. <laughs> All right. 
Uh, so next up in the news, reviews are in for second stage <laughs> Cardinal. Muhaha. Uh, yeah. So, James, I accidentally uh, put you in an awkward spot on Tuesday's show after you saw Cardinal, but before it was officially open. So now we're going to circle back and get to that. Um, so I apologize, but we're, we're coming back. Um, the show is currently running at second stage through February 25th and stars uh, Anna Klumsky, Adam Pally. Becky Ann Baker, Alex Hurt, and more. Written by Greg Pierce and directed by Kate Wariski. The show tells the story of Lydia's wild idea to invigorate her Rust Belt town. But when a whip-smart entrepreneur co-ops her scheme, a precarious rivalry is born. A battle for the town's soul, the town's soul, ensues, causing its obsessive mayor, its defiant matriarch, and the rest of its residents to question who they are and where they're headed. Now, on to the reviews which are not especially kind. Jesse Green of the New York Times said, quote, Unfortunately, the production does nothing to advance that reading, nor can it smooth the shift in tone that occurs in the last third of the 90-minute play. And though the story wraps up with a pair of lovely scenes that allow the leading actors, especially Miss Baker, to do their best work, Cardinal never achieves the gravity of its own aims. Great ideas are not always good ones. Sarah Holdren of Vulture wrote, quote, Greg Pierce's new play Cardinal is a bit like its own central character, Lydia Linsky. Both are cute at the outset and probably mean well despite cynical tendencies. But when you get down to it, both are pretty awful. Cardinal is part of a widespread, depressing trend of contemporary playwriting and, crucially, play producing that might be called the Law & Order SVU Gambit. Stick to a tested formula, be it solving New York's latest especially heinous sex crime, or crafting a basic sitcom-esque family drama or quirky romance or a coming-of-age tale, then insert a hot-button issue. Joe Dominowitz of the New York Daily News says the play's point turns ever murkier as subplots about racial stereotyping, love and sex, and generational expectations are briefly touched on. Now, James, I'm sure that we will discuss this in depth on Sunday when I join you on This Week on Broadway. But did these reviews line up with what you thought about Cardinal or were they a little too nice for how you viewed the show? Huh. You know, I think that they they really hit on most of the issues there. I think that Cardinal had such potential. It's interesting. I think it needs a dramaturg and uh, you know, a a focus. I it just tried to do too many things and I felt at times it was trying to be ostentatious ostentatious just for the just to be ostentatious. Sake into, yeah, for, for the sake of doing it, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, it just, it was just, it wasn't for me, and I was, I was, it was a miss. All right. Yeah. Well, that's too bad. I love the cast, and uh, I, I wish them well, and hopefully they can get it figured out, I guess. All right. Um, so, showing casting news, what do we got there? All right, apparently on Tuesday night, with no announcement or warning, 
Taylor Trench began his run as Evan Hansen at the Music Box Theater. The first word that we got that he had stepped into the role was that people started Twittering and Instagramming their playbills and understudy slips that said he would be on for the role. Then Laura Dreyfus, obviously Zoe in the show, tweeted a picture of herself in her dressing room mid-show, completely in tears and blamed Trench for it. Now, what's interesting, though, is that Noah Galvin, who has been playing Evan since Ben Platt left, more or less, was on for yesterday's matinee, but then Trench played the evening performance. Um, They've been very unspecific about when Galvin was leaving and when Trench was taking over, originally saying mid-January, and then Galvin at one point saying he was leaving on the 28th. Obviously, there's been some changes of the, uh, uh, you know, in terms of both of those things. But I would assume that there will be a bit of a back and forth between Noah and Taylor before Taylor takes over full time next week, I guess. I think that makes sense. Um, also, we got our first look of Trench in the Evan Hansen costume. If you want to see those pictures, check out the link in the show notes. Um, he looks different. Than, I mean, just because he's a different person, but he looks like he carries himself a little different in the role than... Um, that we've seen before, especially from Ben, he looks a little more angry in some of these pictures. Um, but definitely you can see the connection that he has with, uh, you know, his his role as the alternate of Christopher and um, Curious Incident. You can see a little bit of that in there. So it'll be interesting to see what they do in terms of the casting and, and how they decide to move forward with this and when Taylor actually takes over full time. All right. So Playwrights Horizons extends miles for Mary. Yes, uh, on Wednesday, we learned that Playwrights Horizon has extended Miles for Mary for the second time. The show, created by the theater collective known as The Mad Ones, was directed by Lila Neugebauer. Of course it was. It was originally scheduled to just play through this weekend, and the show will now run through February 25th. And then a story I wanted to get to in this section, guys. Finally, yesterday, the New York Times reported that the Hungarian state opera is currently in the middle of a production of Porgy and Bess. Of course, operas do Porgy and Bess all the time. It is essentially an opera. But the Hungarian state opera has apparently taken some liberties with the beloved Gershwin classic. Not only is the company made up of an almost entirely white performers, but they have transported the action from Catfish Row in Charleston, South Carolina, to a refugee camp in an airplane hangar. Now... The Gershwins were very clear in stating that the opera should only be performed by African-American casts, even turning down lucrative opportunities at the Metropolitan Opera and then with Al Jolson, who each wanted to have the show done in blackface back in the 1930s. However, the Hungarian State Opera's general director said that the contra- a contract that they signed with Tams Whitmark, who is the licensing organization and agent for the Gershwin Estate, did not have any language about casting limitations. They admit that in discussions with Tams Whitmark, uh, the licensing organization did specify that it had to be done with an all-black cast, but never enumerated it as such in the contract. In response, Tams Whitmark required that the opera add a sentence on all printed materials, including advertisements, stating that the production is taking place without authorization and, quote, is contrary to the requirements for the presentation of the work. Thames Whitmark had no further comment on the situation to the Times. The opera's director said that the point of this production is to take the opera, quote, out of context so it can't relate to any specific place. Now, keep in mind that the country of Hungary, which is run by far-right authoritarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, um, is is very much battling some of the same 
social unrest things that we are here in the United States. Many conservative columnists in the country are denouncing the, quote, political correctness of performing the opera with only a black cast. One columnist said, quote, political correctness is slowly devouring aesthetics. I don't actually know what that's supposed to mean or if there's some sort of language translation uh, issue there. But it sounds like a bunch of malarkey to me, to quote former Vice President Mm -hmm. Joe Biden. Um, But really, first, shame on the Hungarian state opera for purposely defying the wishes of the creators and doing something just because you found a loophole. But more so, shame on Tams Whitmark for not having this as a standard language in their contract and then not immediately pulling the rights once they found out what the opera company was doing, specifically after they were told in conversations about the production, you have the right as the licensing organization to pull the rights at any point, contract or not. And instead of this, they thought, in my opinion, it's over in Hungary. Nobody's going to find out. We'll just let it happen. We'll take their money. And then it became a big story. And now they've got egg on their face. I, I'm, I've worked with Tams Whitmark on a number of things in the past. Never been super impressed with their operation. And this is just another thing where it looks like they were prioritizing the money over the fact that um, you know they they have a responsibility to uphold the Gershwin's wishes on this show. Hmm. I wonder um, what the copyright laws are like in Budapest. So I wonder if there's any recourse there from either the Gershwin's or or Tams Whitmark or any anything like that. But um, that's. Uh, it's very complicated once you cross international lines to enforce sure. these things. Well, but they still have the opportunity. They still yeah. have the ability to pull the, the, the contract and Maybe. say the lights have been revoked. Well, they can always say it. I mean, at least say it and, and say that your license has been revoked. And then if they choose to do the production anyway, then you have different legal recourses than if you just say, hey, throw this line on all your printed materials and then you can keep doing it even though it's not what we want. You know, if you just say we no longer grant you permission, then you probably have a little bit more legal um, heft on your side in trying to pursue any course of action. Hmm. 1956, Budapest is rising. All right. Uh, Daniela, what's going on this week in this week's theater throwback? Great. So today we are going back to January 29th, 1966. This was the opening night of Sweet Charity on Broadway, as well as the reopening of the Palace Theater. And that second part, the Palace, is what I'm going to focus on because it's a much more interesting story. The Palace first opened its doors in 1913, and it began as a vaudeville house. Martin Beck funded the theater with the hopes of creating some competition for Benjamin Keith and Edward Albee, who had nearly monopolized the vaudeville industry at that time. They owned most... They owned most of the big acclaimed theaters on the East Coast, as well as the United Booking Office, which was an agency that vaudeville performers had to work through if they wanted to perform in these big, amazing theaters. So they had control of the theaters and, in a way, of the performers themselves. While Martin Beck's plan to challenge the challenge them didn't work out so well, Albie demanded from Beck three-quarters ownership of the theater or else he will not book any of his acts at the palace. And since so many of the performers were working through Albie's agency, Beck kind of had to say yes if he wanted anyone to ever perform at his theater. Once all the rights were settled out, all the ownership, the palace got off to a bit of a rocky start. Its first headliner, Edwin, wasn't terribly successful, so the theater was losing money for a little bit. 
But eventually it was able to get back on its feet and quickly became the place to perform. Playing the palace was considered the pinnacle of vaudeville success and acts were desperate to get onto the bill. After about 15 years of this craziness, vaudeville began to decline, and so inevitably the palace began to struggle. They tried upping the number of performances to bring in more money, but people just didn't want to see vaudeville anymore. So like pretty much every other theater that I've talked about on here, it was turned into a movie house in the early 30s. By the 50s, the palace had begun holding some sporadic performances, mostly reviews, one-person shows, and that kind of stuff. And then finally, in the mid-60s, the Nederlander organization bought the theater and reopened it as a full-time Broadway house. As I said, the official reopening came with Sweet Charity in January of 1966, and for the past 58 years, the palace has been operating as one of the biggest houses on Broadway. And then as a side note, I had to include this. The palace is supposedly super haunted. There, um, if you Google it, you come up with a ton of ghost stories. Uh, people have seen a white-gowned cellist playing in the pit, a boy rolling around toy trucks in the mezzanine, and apparently Judy Garland just being Judy Garland. Um, there's also a story about... What, what is that? What, wait, hold on. Judy Garland being Judy Garland. What, what does that mean? Is she just... I don't like... know. Just like existing... Oh, I thought she's like, like they, sitting they around a piano with Mickey Rooney and saying, hey, let's put on a show. Uh, no? I don't know. Maybe. I haven't <laughs> maybe. seen it. <laughs> um, but there's also a story about an acrobat who fell off of a tightrope during a performance in the 50s. Some reports say he died. Others claim that he was only injured. But either way, legend has it that his ghost can be swin. Yeah. Legend has it that at night, his ghost can be seen swinging around the stage and reenacting his tragic fall. Today, along with all of those spirits, the palace, of course, is home to SpongeBob SquarePants and will soon be going be undergoing construction to be raised 29 feet above ground level. Hmm. Very cool. I love Very that. Very cool. We need more. Yeah. We need more ghost stories. We need more. Ghost stories. <laughs> yeah. OK, guys, we have some breaking news here. Um, this is not in the script. And I just saw it come across as uh, as Daniela was talking. And it does come from our friend uh, Mark Hirschberg over at Forbes. Apparently, Great Comet is coming back, not to New York, but the Great Comet will have its first international production next January at the Tokyo Metropolitan Theater. Toho, a Japanese entertainment company um, that's known for creating the Godzilla franchise, will produce the show. Uh, in addition in, uh, to developing its own content for the stage, the firm has imported classic American musicals like My Fair Lady and Fiddler on the Roof since the 1960s. It secured a license to present The Great Comet from Broadway Asia, and royalty payments from the Japanese production might be flowing back to the original investors. Mark then goes on to talk about how Productions and tours in Asia have helped shows recoup that either completely flopped on Broadway or were very close on Broadway, so much so that he even quotes um, uh, Barry Weisler is saying that Susical is now very close to recouping because of its time in Asia. So apparently the Great Comet, which did announce a U.S. tour at some point, no word on that um, actually happening yet, will have an international production in Japan beginning just about a year from now. Hmm. That could be really, really interesting. Yeah. I, I wonder uh, if if they will uh, dig deep into the pockets and see if they can get Groban out there just to even launch it. I, I have a feeling I have a feeling Groban is 
pretty big um, worldwide, but I don't know if they would do this in English. Like, w- would they do it in English? I don't know how that works. Um, maybe someone who's seen um, a lot of Broadway shows in Asia or something can let us know. Do they normally do them in the vernacular of the of the city that it's in, or do they do it in the original language it's written? I, I don't know. I'm sure there's probably a mixed bag and depends on the situation. Yeah. That's very interesting. All right. So uh, got it in under the wire. Why don't you get us out of here? All right. Thanks for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. You can find me on Twitter at BWW Matt and subscribe to Something Got Pop on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Daniela, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Daniela Parcel and on Instagram at Daniela Parcello Well. And my name is James Marino from BroadwayRadio.com and BroadwayStars.com. Thanks for spending some of your Thursday with us, and come on back tomorrow. Matt and I will send you into the weekend. 